You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about communication studies, featuring our guest, Sarah J. Jackson, Presidential Associate Professor in Communication and Co-Director of the Media Inequality and Change Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Jackson is an expert in Black and feminist media and activism. Her research focuses on how marginalized groups use and are represented by media, journalism, and technology. As a 2020 Andrew Carnegie Fellow, she is working on a third book about the power and innovation of African-American media makers in the 21st century. Welcome, Dr. Jackson. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've been enjoying talking to scholars in the different disciplines about their work and also how their work emerges from the disciplinary formation. And Communication studies is one of the more intriguing disciplines in this series because in some ways it's one of the oldest disciplines and then it's also a much more 20th century discipline than some of the others we've been talking about. So when you come to communication studies, I mean, how do you think of this field as a discipline? Yeah, it's a great question. And as you sort of suggested it's a little bit more complicated than it sounds. Many of the field's brightest thinkers have struggled to delineate the disciplinary boundaries of the field because it's a very interdisciplinary field that draws on both old areas like rhetoric, for example, and new areas like public policy and policy science, for example. But at its core, communication studies is the study of how and to what end various forms of communication form and shape our lives, culture, and society. It's interesting being the dean of a school of liberal arts because we have students who are often attracted to the field, to our department of communication or communication studies, media, and may think it is one thing that it turns out to be another once they get more deeply in it. I mean, one of the things that we often think is that technologies of communication that start to appear in the world in the 19th century in a much more vivid way, start to enter the conversation that turns it a different way. Yeah, that is a big force for the contemporary founding of what I would say is the field for communication studies. You know, scholars in largely the West were really thinking about the ways that societies and cultures and communities were being changed, were being broadened, were being expanded, were being limited by new technologies, by media, And in some cases, they were very concerned that these technologies and media would have a negative effect on the world. But the discipline of communication studies, it's not the study of technology. That's not what communication studies is. Communication studies is the study of all forms of communication. And so when we think about society and how societies and cultures form, the idea was that communication reflected culture, that it was sort of a chicken and an egg. It both created and reflected at the same time. And so a lot of studies of communication, whether that is presidential speeches, right, which are a form of oral communication, or whether that is TV news, which is a form of technologically mediated communication, are thinking about how those forms of communication are shaping the ways in which we think about society. So really at core to the field is the idea that communication can change the way that we think. And if you change the way you think, you can essentially change people's behavior, right? You can shape 
culture, you can shape norms. So how, given that history or that way of understanding the recent history of the field, how exactly does race structure communication studies? Yeah, this is a great question. So race structures communication studies in some of the same ways that race structures every field, you know, but I'll say a few things. First, there's the obvious privileging of Eurocentric and Western modes of knowledge that have largely been traced to the Enlightenment and thinking that has arisen from the Enlightenment. And so, for example, in the field of communication, we draw a lot of early theorizing around the idea of the public from Dewey and more recently from Jürgen Habermas. And of course, both Dewey and Habermas are thinking in context of Western societies. And so even on the critical side, the theorists were coming out of Germany, the Birmingham School, which is big in our in our field, comes out of the United Kingdom. And so like most of Western academic epistemologies, the field has ignored the majority of people in the world, essentially, despite the fact that, and I'm thinking now specifically of African and Asian cultures, but obviously others, that these cultures have complex ideas to describe some of the same concepts that are very core to the field of communication, like the public, right? They had complex ideas and norms to delimit interpersonal communication, to develop collective politics long before the West presumed to be authorities on these ideas. So in part, the field of communication studies reflects that general, what I would say is a larger Western bias in academia that really deprives us of non-Western, non-Eurocentric forms of knowledge. Second, there are, of course, the ways that communities and people of color have been erased within much of the core theorizing of the field of communication. And the example I always use is that Jürgen Habermas's concept of the public sphere, of public sphere theory, has become very, very core to our field in thinking about ideas of the public and ideas of public opinion, ideas of public politics and public deliberation. But that theory itself presumed a sort of inclusive form of deliberation and debate that simply didn't account for the structural exclusion of people of color, of women, of poor people. And so the idea of the public sphere never really existed as it was proposed because of all of these structural exclusions. And so Scholars like Nancy Fraser, who's a feminist scholar, Catherine Squires, who's a black feminist scholar, and others have pointed out in their work on counterpublics this critique of Habermas. But something that we see in the field is that the field, at least the center of the field, sort of continues to privilege the Habermasian idea of the public sphere above those critiques of it. So you see Habermas continuing to be cited at a much higher rate. And you could say the same for many theories and theorists across the field, where these original sort of normative Eurocentric frameworks that really excluded large populations of people or didn't take into consideration the way that so-called democracy was actually being felt and enacted in ways that excluded huge swaths of people are being centered as the norm or as normative ideals or goals to study or to seek without sort of taking these critiques from the margins into account. And so obviously that has affected our ability as a field to develop necessary epistemologies for understanding the world around us, because we're really not taking into account these critiques with the same weight as we should. 
And that, what you're saying, goes right to the heart of the field of communication there, if an ideal. Yeah, I mean, that's just one example. There are plenty of other theories that, you know, you could do a similar breakdown of. But part of my point is that the critiques exist, right? The scholars at the margins, the black scholars, the women scholars. Then and now we're saying, hey, wait a minute, there are other ways in which civil society is constructed from the margins that are more inclusive, that might expand our democracy, that might give us more useful tools to understand contemporarily something, for example, like polarization. But yet that work is often at the margins of the field where this preference for these sort of normative Eurocentric theories is offered instead. There's a third thing I would add in terms of how race shapes the field, which is that the first two things I mentioned, the sort of general Western and Eurocentric bias of the field and the reliance on the exclusion of theoretical frameworks that come from the margins, both of those things really structure the administration of our field. And by the administration, I feel, I mean, who gets hired, how students in graduate and PhD programs get trained. And so, for example, in 2018, this article was published in the flagship journal of our field called Communication So White, an article by Paula Chakravarty, who's at NYU, and her co-authors, where they actually looked at publications over time in the highest ranked journals in our field and found that these journals routinely omit scholars of color and scholarship on issues of race. And likewise, in a study of doctoral programs that I did with Paula, we found that most PhD programs in communication studies also sort of exclude critical theories of race or decoloniality in their pedagogy, despite the fact, by the way, that some of the field's most influential thinkers were committed to those projects. So, for example, Stuart Hall is one of, I think, what many people will consider one of the fathers of at least the cultural and critical side of the field of communication studies. And of course, Stuart Hall was Jamaican-born, self-identified as a post-colonial subject, and wrote at length about race, about nationalism, about coloniality. And yet one of the things that we found in our study was that when Stuart Hall is assigned in communication PhD programs, it's often his piece on encoding, decoding about media consumption, which is one of the only pieces he wrote that isn't exclusively about race, that is assigned. And so his writing and his thinking about the relationship between race and communication and culture often isn't what is being assigned, even as he is sort of foundational to the field. And so that's an example of some of the administrative ways that this acts out. And of course, that means that Many communication scholars haven't been trained to or encouraged to carefully engage with questions of race and power. It often leads a vacuum in classrooms when students want to talk about those things, right? And when hiring committees look at potential candidates or when admissions committees look at future graduate students, certain areas that have been excluded continue to be treated as if like, oh, are these really part of our field, right? Even though they are and should be. In an essay that you published a couple of years ago about Black Lives Matter and journalism, you have this kind of personal aside and you say, like potentially many people in this room, because I guess you were giving this as a talk, I had initially hoped to work as a professional journalist. And I did, in fact, a little of that at various points in my life. But I ended up going the academic route because it turned out I was more interested in the question of interrogating the power of stories, the power of journalism and who gets to tell those stories and whose voices are included in terms of shaping culture and politics. 
I like that. I like it very much. I'm sure it resonates with students as well as other academics. If you maybe just say something a little bit about moving between journalism and the desire to be a journalist or not, and then what you see the possibilities are in what you call the academic route. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked this question because one of the things we didn't talk about when we were talking about the newer origins of the field is that journalism studies is a big part of it, right? I mean, of course, communication studies covers all kinds of media, not just journalism, but folks who critically analyze and think about the power of journalism in our society are a very central and core part of the field, in part because journalistic practice and journalism as a practice very much is core to that idea of the public that this is the information we all share and that we can sort of develop identities, we can develop politics, we can develop things to deliberate about or not to deliberate about based on the news, right? And so that becomes really central to the field. And and yeah, when I was younger, um, when I was an undergrad, I thought that I might want to be a journalist. I majored in broadcast journalism and I did a little, you know, here and there. I never was officially, you know, a full-time journalist. But I had enough experiences in the journalism space that at the time, I wouldn't have been able to name exactly what was happening. But what I realized later in retrospect is that many of those were experiences around bias, right? Where I was seeing this one story get privileged over another story or one person's version of authority being privileged over another person's authority. A great example of that that has really come to be apparent in recent years in journalism is the way in which journalists for the vast majority of history, and I would say still today, but maybe a little lesser, assume that a police officer's version of events is the accurate one, as opposed to, you know, witnesses who saw what happened or a person who was there, they're given a type of authority. And those types of observations when I was young really made me want to ask more questions about media and power and really turned me towards studying it. Because something like assuming that one person and or one category of people are deserving of more referential treatment or authority by journalists has caused a lot of problems in this country, quite, quite frankly. Um, and not just, you know, in that case, but in many different cases. You know, there are a lot of wonderful communication scholars who also worked at various points in their life much more seriously than I did as professional journalists. And they're wonderful to have in our field because they really have the ability to think through some of these questions about how the industry norms of journalism and how the role of journalism impacts our everyday lives. So the rise of digital technology has made what we used to call alternative journalism or in the other conversation, counterpublics much more accessible, right? You know, it's easier to have access to a range of voices should she or he want to access them. And at certain moments, I kind of look around at different perspectives when I'm trying to see how different people are reporting the same story. But on the other hand, we know this the term filter bubble, that these same technologies that have made more accessible to us, different forms of journalism or different voices are also involved in filtering what we see more in a different way. So is this the right time to be having this conversation? Or is it a more and more perilous time to be having the conversation about access to different voices and different approaches? Yeah, there's so many directions here that we could go. It's, it's such a dense question. But you know, one of the things that I think people really have to be cautious about in our field is technological determinism. 
And what I mean by that is that there was this moment when the internet became more or less ubiquitous in the West, where there was this technological optimism where people said, now you can get all the information you want about the whole world. Everybody can say their piece and you can get alternative points of views and you can quote unquote, do your own research and, you know, like all these things. And it was supposed to be this positive thing. But partially what that didn't account for was that power still exists. Whether the internet exists or not, social power, social structures still exist. And so for a long time, there was a digital divide. There were inequalities about who could and couldn't access the internet. And of course, there's still the economics of the media in which just because somebody has a blog or writes something doesn't actually mean anyone will ever read or write it. It's often people who are already in elite positions who have access to sort of the largest sounding boards, even within new technology. Now that said, I would also warn people away from the digital pessimism because there was this other take that was that the internet was going to bring down democracy and that, you know, it was, it was terrible in all these ways. And in some ways it has made it easier for us to see things like hate speech, see things like extremist groups, be exposed to some of the more sort of terrible, I would say, undercurrents of our society. But I always remind people those things actually existed also before the internet, right? We are a country where racism and sexism and homophobia and all these other things were very core <laughs> to much of our politics and culture long before we were able to more easily see that online. And so really there is a middle ground, which is the fact that it is the case, um, and that's something we write about in hashtag activism, that ordinary people have been able to extend the sorts of counter publicity that they always had, right? African Americans had the black press, women had the feminist press. They had technologies, they had media that they were producing to reflect some of the in-group and enclave politics that were happening behind the scenes and we were being ignored in the mainstream. And the internet has, of course, made those things more visible and easier for outgroup members to see. And so now there is this sort of heyday of Twitter. I think it might be over, to be quite honest with you, where you could go online and you could see these conversations coming out of publics that you weren't a part of. And you could actually learn and maybe engage and ask questions and be introduced to new sets of politics that you might not otherwise be introduced to in a more easy, easeful way than, you know, in real life, having to go to a community organizing meeting or like try a new church or something like that. And that, of course, has been a good thing. I wrote a editorial for the New York Times called Twitter Made Us Better. And I wrote it at a time when everyone was talking about how Twitter made us worse. And I was like, I still think Twitter made us better. But of course, it is also the case that people have used the internet just like they've used technology in any other time to further misinformation, to further disinformation, to further polarize and separate people, to, you know, stoke flames of difference. It's a tool, right? I always say the technology itself isn't good or bad, but it's that human beings do good and bad things with technologies. And they really always have. You've written several pieces in the last couple of years on Black Lives Matter in variety of approaches to helping us understand Black Lives Matter in what you call hashtag activism or in this kind of media landscape. So reduce a lot of different work there. How should we think of Black Lives Matter in this context? Yeah. So one of the most important things that I always say is I want people to understand that social movements 
don't just happen because of a hashtag and don't just happen because of technology. That every social movement that has happened throughout history happens because of conditions on the ground. It happens because of organizing. It happens because of communities coming together, even if the first time you learn about it is because of a hashtag. And so one of the things that I think is really important to remember about the hashtag Black Lives Matter is that it really helped bring attention and it helped what we would say in social movement studies is promulgate the message of ongoing racial injustice and really helped to shore up solidarity against that, which is a wonderful thing. But it also reflects narratives and discourse that have been coming out of what I call counterpublics and coming out of social movements for a long time. And so people have been on the ground organizing against police violence in Black communities and have been working to try to dismantle systems of racial profiling and of other forms of America's racial caste system long before the hashtag Black Lives Matter existed. But what the internet has introduced and something like a shorthand, like a hashtag like Black Lives Matter, or even like Me Too has introduced, is essentially a new type of megaphone, where this stuff that was happening that maybe wasn't being treated as newsworthy that maybe was being ignored because it was happening to non-dominant communities, that part of the everyday experience of some people in this country can suddenly be yelled to more people, to many people. And because of that, it becomes newsworthy. It becomes something that people are paying attention to. And, you know, the brilliance, of course, of a hashtag is that it's just one short phrase that often can encapsulate the larger history, the larger goals, the larger demands of offline social movement. And so it essentially becomes one form of publicity for a larger social movement. This is really great. And for people who haven't been thinking of it this way before, understand the hashtag itself as, like you say, as a megaphone, but as a form of technology or a tool within you know, a social media technology that amplifies. So how has then more broadly social media changed the racial justice struggle? You know, I feel like my answer here might be a little disappointing, (laughs) which is that social media has changed the racial justice struggle in that more people across larger geographies can be exposed to arguments for racial justice at a rate that we've never seen ever before. And that's hugely significant. And so more people across the world or across the nation, regardless of the neighborhood they live in or the school they went to or didn't go to, can be exposed to these ideas about racism, about structural inequality, about white supremacy, and take part in or even just watch these conversations play out at a scale that we've never seen. And this is hugely, hugely significant for something called consciousness raising which is, you know, where folks come to understand the world around them better and sort of come to terms with the issues that communities are trying to change or that social movements are trying to face. So in that way, I would say that social media has been hugely significant because certainly it has allowed for the circulation of things that have fundamentally rocked us as a nation. The video of George Floyd being murdered was largely circulated online before it was ever circulated on the news. And there have been many other similar cases to that. And that sort of public outreach that resulted made it a newsworthy story 
made it into something that evoked national protests and that I think we can fairly say has really changed the tenor and type of public discourse over the past few years. So in that way, I would say, you know, it's, it's been hugely, hugely important. As somebody who, in addition to being a communication scholar, I'm also a social movement scholar. I always have to say, now that said, folks on the ground in these communities have been fighting this fight for a long time. They've often been being ignored. And that is the thing that in some ways social media has made less the case, is that it's harder to ignore these issues. It's harder to ignore the folks who have been yelling, hey, look, racial profiling is an issue. These unjust police stops are an issue, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know that in terms of the longer scope, and I really think people should see it as a longer scope. I often say Black Lives Matter is just one iteration of the longer Black freedom struggle in America. And if you think about that struggle as starting with the effort to abolish slavery, in which Black people were telling their own stories through things like slave narratives. And then you think about the civil rights struggle, where again, Black people were telling their own stories through media that they were making until the mainstream would pay attention and listen in each of those cases, I think the contemporary moment isn't that dissimilar, that folks are still advancing that struggle and they're using the technologies and the communication methods available to them to get the mainstream to pay attention. Back to the discipline of communication studies, and we're talking about the 2020 protests that followed George Floyd's murder. Have you seen yet any changes or conversations in the field or discipline itself of communication studies in the last couple of years or on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say actually a lot of them started before the 2020 moment. I think a lot of those conversations started during the Trump presidency. And so there were many scholars in the field who for a long time, you know, most of them are scholars of color, feminist scholars, were asking for the field to examine some of those like issues that I mentioned earlier that create entrenched forms of racism in the field. So there had been work on that in our professional organizations for a long time, but certainly it came to a head, I would say, in the last five to six years. The article I mentioned, the Communication So White study, which was first a hashtag on Twitter, and then they used the hashtag for this study to show the underrepresentation of research and researchers from communities of color in the field came out in 2018. So certainly, though the uprisings in 2020 have further pushed that forward, I think the unrepentant racism that we saw coming out of the Trump administration also pushed that forward and served as a wake-up call for some of the folks in the field who had maybe previously ignored conversations about race in the field. And so I think for one, our professional organizations, the National Communication Association, the International Communication Association, and there's, you know, a dozen more that I, I won't bore people by rattling off. But I think a lot of these professional associations have made more public commitments to dismantling forms of exclusion in sort of their structures. And some, not all, but some of the journals, the flagship journals in the field have made similar public commitments. I mean, we'll have a better sense if these commitments, you know, result in action and what happens in the years to come and in the future. And I do think that some of those scholars I mentioned who were previously being ignored, who had been asking critical questions about race and colonialism and whiteness in the field and things like that, are being drawn increasingly towards the center. Now, again, I say these things to some extent. I mean, certainly not fully. We haven't seen a 
360. And I think that would take a lot more than the sort of smaller efforts that we're seeing. But I do certainly hope that these trends continue, that these conversations continue. And I think there has been an increased amount of space for them. I think it'll be a matter of whether or not we maintain that. So what does anti-racism mean in communication studies? I mean, what would anti-racist work look like in the discipline? You know, I think the main thing it means is getting comfortable doing a lot harder work in the field than just so-called diversity work. It's more than the superficial, representational sort of political conversations. It means communication scholars really need to educate themselves about histories of race and racism and incorporate theory and ideas and epistemologies that have really critically engaged, not just with race and racism in the United States, but across the globe, because we're a global field. And so, of course, self-examination is a part of this, but I really think institutions acting structurally is a big part of this as well. And I think a lot about the phrase anti-racism and how it's become popularized post-2020 and the ways that it's been circulated in media. And I actually fear that it has been watered down and sort of turned into something that people feel like, oh, I can read a book and then, you know, I've solved the problem rather than it being an action. The first time I ever encountered the term anti-racism was through Angela Davis's work. And, you know, Angela Davis is, of course, a preeminent scholar, but she also, you know, was a Black Panther. She went to prison for her radical beliefs. She helped break Black freedom fires out of prison. She's an anti-capitalist. She's a socialist, an abolitionist. And so I think for scholars or for institutions, whether in the field of communication or in the academy more general, to think about what it truly means to be anti-racist, it probably means being abolitionist and working to dismantle class exploitation. And there's some things that are difficult there because universities are deeply tied to the prison industrial complex and their primary spaces for enforcing class differences, as is our fields. And so I'm not sure that my field of communication studies or really any field, quite honestly, is entirely ready for that. But I hope that at the very least, we can start to treat these ideas that at previous times were dismissed as too radical as valid entry points into developing our pedagogies developing our epistemologies, and that that will be part of pushing past this idea that just being aware that racism is a problem is enough, but actually creating action so that at the very least, there's an active process of eliminating racism in our organizational structures and practices across the field. That would be something I think I would certainly embrace more conversations about how to do that. Sarah, thank you so much for a really engaging conversation and all the work that you're doing in your scholarship and your teaching. And it's really inspiring to have this conversation. Oh, yeah. Thanks for doing this. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers or students or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green. And special thanks to Professor Billy Sass.